Girl, it's your time. Don't ever ever change your mind, 'cause you're mine. All those years I'm playing tough. All those years I gave you up. I'm never gonna hide you. Never gonna fight you again. Not for any man, girl. It's your body. Don't ever ever say you're sorry, 'cause you're not a copy. All those years I wore myself high. Welcome to Shameless Talks. This podcast is for our independence issue. I mean, it's definitely for our independence issue. But sort of a funny thing happened. I realized as I was editing this thing together that I interviewed exclusively artists, artists that have all at some point worked on their own art or worked on art in collaboration with others. And it got me thinking about the nature of creation or making something creative, and how that links to independence. See, for us here at Shameless, we are considered indie media, which means that we are held accountable to our readership and. Our listeners above any funding body or advertiser, but our survival and our growth really relies on the collective that we've made: staffers, writers, co-conspirators, contributors, and especially the youth advisory board. And together, we all fuel this thing, shameless, to continue to make it independent. I guess I used to think that was sort of a contradiction of ideas, collaboration to assert independence, but I sure don't think that anymore. We'll speak with multidisciplinary artist Vivek Shraya about managing the fear around making, what she's learned about working with youth artists, and、um, a little lightning round with bite-sized lessons about art and love and independence. We'll speak to a member of Bonerkill, a collective of young female artists that. Among other things, challenge the idea of who the mainstream art world sort of, you know, quote, lets in, or who's allowed to be an artist, and why. Vivek Shraya is a multidisciplinary and very decorated artist, writer, and musician. She's had a ton of press and honors for her first book of poetry, "Even This Page Is White," and she's one half of Too Attached, which is a music duo of her and her brother, and they've shared a stage with Tegan and Sarah. And she was a 2016 Pride Grand Marshal. She spoke with me about trying out different methods to fine tune your art,、um, what working with young artists has taught her, and how coming out as trans last year has made her challenge some of her old assumptions. Here's Vivek. Okay, so I'm going to dive in. Sure. Okay, so you've had you've、uh, produced a lot of art in the last few years, <laughs> and I I am.、Um, Myself, I know some artists that make beautiful stuff, but they, as they get to know them better, they kind of reveal that they have like a low to medium base hum of fear,、uh, and you know, like what if people don't think what I make is any good, or or what if I hate what it says about me once it's in the world, and like the way that it's perceived, it's vulnerable to outside meaning and that kind of stuff. So,、um, if you have had that feeling, how do you? Manage it, especially with like this high level of artistic output. 
Uh, I mean, I think that's a great question. Sure, of course, I struggle with um, fear and, I mean, a range of fear in terms of like, yeah, like, will the work connect? You know, uh, Neil Gaiman, I think, did this whole speech where he talked about how being an artist is like putting messages in the bottle and how, and sending them into the ocean and you mm -hmm. hope that it reaches the other side, but often it doesn't. And, you know, that's something I really connected to because I really feel like you know, a big chunk of my career has been me putting messages in the bottle and them drowning, essentially. <laughs> and so even though in like recent years, I've been fortunate that some of my work has been picked up and, and has been, you know, appreciated or whatever, there's a part of me that still comes from that scarcity model where I'm like, oh my God, like, is this bottle going to make it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. But I think in some ways being um, prolific or productive is actually one of my strategies of com combating that um, in a roundabout way because I think the and I, I mean first and foremost I'm not interested in producing work for the sake of it like I never make things just because but I do think it is a bit of a strategy in that like well if this one doesn't make it to the other side to use that analogy I've got another thing coming mm -hmm. you know and so um, and also it just I think it, yeah it just gives me a sense of I saw an amazing uh, exhibit at the AGO a couple years ago, and um, it was a collection of a body of work. And I think one of the things that really also relieved for me was I think that a lot of artists were so consumed by like the particular project we're working on. Like, is this thing going to connect? Is this thing going to get criticized? Is this thing going to get ignored? But when you start to think of your, like, if you start to think of your practice as a body of work, that each work that you make is part of a broader story i think there's a bit of relief because mm -hmm. it's like even if this doesn't connect or even if this does get criticized or even if this isn't perfect um knowing that there's a broader story that it's going to be a part of is a bit of a, a relief that is a, a good point is you mean like not putting all of your hopes onto one exactly. art project to say everything exactly you hope it says <laughs> exactly and sorry not to go on and on no, here, please. but like I think also what's been useful for me too is that like I don't understand the magic of connection like I've made a lot of work where I've been like oh this is gonna this is gonna be it this is gonna be the thing and then I've made other things where I'm like no one's gonna care about this and I've generally been wrong <laughs> so I think for me part of um, working through this is just like having like is uh, I think the thing I, I learn over and over again is to trust the muse mm -hmm. to make the work that you care about and yes, you have that fear, but all you can do as an artist is make the work that you are connected to and are, are inspired to make. Yeah. Cool. Um, I read somewhere that when you were writing your illustrated novel, She of the Mountains, you would sing out <laughs> sections. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? What that's about? Yeah. So, I mean, generally as a writer, I find working orally. So with my first book, God Loves Hair, you know, I'd never sort of had this idea that you have to do readings. Book readings wasn't even like, you know, it was my first book. I wasn't even thinking that big. Um, but I found that saying the text out loud as I was working through it was a really useful way to figure out if the, the, the writing... Um, was working on the page, especially someone who, even though I majored in, in English, I don't really feel like I understand um, grammar and punctuation. Maybe that's a terrible thing to admit. And so saying text out loud, I find is really useful because you get a sense of flow. If it's clunky, it's like, okay, split up that sentence, or maybe you need a different word. And with She of the Mountains, um, my second book, I wanted it to have like a lyrical quality. I wanted it to have a musicality to it. So it was almost like using that same technique of working with it orally, but then like pushing it um, to that, like literally a musical place where I would, you know, 
try to sing the lines and see how they sounded melodically if it yeah did you change the sentence once you would sing it sometimes and like because the cadence like you were talking about this organic idea of perhaps not necessarily paying as close attention to punctuation and grammar but you you'll know when you hear it exactly um that the cadence of the of, of a sentence or a, or a paragraph or whatever once you would ha- you'd be like okay that's pretty good and then sing it and be like no the cadence is absolutely really yeah, yeah. so i really i really paid attention to what was happening in the melody and um if if it felt like there was um, momentum then it was like okay this is working mm-hmm. if, again if it felt like it was like bumpy mm-hmm. um i would i would change the structure right cool yeah. <laughs> um have you done that with other things no, I mean, I think each project requires a different kind of skill and right. a different okay. approach, and that was the approach that worked for that book. Okay, cool. That's cool. Okay, so um, when did you stop having my back? So it's a song that you recorded late last year, mm-hmm. right, with Light Fires. And um, you've mentioned that the song, or is partially at least, concerned with, perhaps totally concerned with um, allyship, and particularly in the arts community. Um, you've spoken about the importance of white artists and how they should truly consider that their privilege and using their privilege and their platforms to amplify the voices of artists of color in comparison to performing wokeness, I guess, right. or uh, um, to signify liberal c- credentials so that they get a sense of validation, like just to be cool, kind of totally, basically the difference. Totally. So um, can you talk to me about how that informed the, that artistic process of that song? Ooh, um, well, I'm just going to be, I'm going to be honest with yeah. you. Like, so I think Sorry. the the thought process behind the song sort of evolved after the fact. I was um, invited to sing this track that, you know, um, James Bunton and um, Gentleman Reg or mm-hmm. Regina mm-hmm. Um, wrote, um, which was a great experience. And I don't think I thought a lot, truthfully, I don't think I thought a lot about the lyrics while I was singing them. It was more about... Um, you know, when someone, get, I've never done this before. I've never sung someone else's song outside of a cover. And right. so how it was like really trying to honor the musicality and mm. like trying to channel my own Regina, like wanting <laughs> to do like right by the song. Um, but Did I, you do high kicks too? <laughs> I No, I, I mean, I leave that to Regina. Right, okay. <laughs> um, but I think it was like after and having conversations with James about the lyrics and spending time with them specifically that, especially because we, um, sort of worked on it right around the election and then after the fact. So I think um, it was the context that the song was recorded in that really, I think, informed how I sort of like began to see the lyrics Mm. as Mm. um, a way to talk about allyship, especially that line, you know, when did you stop having my back? Mm -hmm. And so um, I don't know that that really answers your question. Well, no, it does. I did. I don't. Uh, I don't think I knew that you didn't write the lyrics, so yeah. that I'm gonna admit that. But I, I, I wonder because I'm reading your book of your, of your book of poetry, even this page is white. There is a section where you talk to other uh, uh, artists about being white and being an artist, and how mm-hmm. that the um, the the structure of of white artists supporting or not supporting artists of color and it just seemed like an um a musical extension extension of that conversation yeah i mean frankly like that's where a lot of my attention has been mm-hmm. especially with even this page is white you know the the focus of that book was sort of like um you know uh, calling or like naming white supremacy mm-hmm. and uh you know dissecting what that means and trying to have more conversations with white artists in particular, because I do think that there is a difference of uh, power. And so I think, of course, like 
you know, given the state of the world and, you know, like I said, the U.S. elections, I think that that conversation has still continued to be top of mind. Yeah. Um, so you, you run a mentorship for young artists of color, mm-hmm. right? Can mm-hmm. you tell me about it? How's it yeah. going? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, essentially that project, if I can call it a project came out of, um, call out culture. So I, you know, I've gone to a lot of events in the city and I see a lot of, I see a lot of things happening online where people like organizers get called out for things or artists get called out for things. And there's a sort of public it's, it feels very performative. I don't know if you've witnessed any of this, but there's something where people who call out, I, I mean, and, you know, first and foremost, I think, of course, as artists and organizers, like, you know, we want to be held accountable. We want to do right. Um, are my answers too long? Not at all. Okay. We want to do right by our communities. But um, I think that there is a way that I'm noticing that these, that accountability is presented that sometimes feels performative and that like it boosts the, the sort of the ego of the person who's doing it. Mm -hmm. Like, look at you, I'm going to put you in your place and therefore get to project how noble and how woke I am. Right. And right. How right I am. How right I am. Exactly. (laughs) And it's always done publicly, which, you know, sometimes is important, but sometimes feels, um, not important. So I was like, I can't change this culture. I can't, um, I can't make it better, but how can I create something that like pushes against that model as an alternative model? And so for me, a mentorship program, um, felt like a way to do that, um, to sort of create more intergenerational conversation. So instead of, you know, calling out younger artists and being like, why aren't you doing this and this for me to say, Hey, let's have a conversation about your art practice. How can I support you as someone who's, you know, 35, which isn't that old, but like have, have been, has been making art professionally in Canada for like 15 years now or 14 years. Um, how can I support your art practice? Mm -hmm. That to me felt like the kind of model I wanted to put out there. And so essentially it was supposed to be one artist I would work with for the (laughs) entire year, but then I got like 14 applications. And again, thinking about my own privilege, I was like, what am I going to do? Say no. <laughs> so I changed the structure of the the mentorship so that I would work with a different artist per month. And so I've been working, um, I'm working with actually from this program, my last artist essentially. So all of last year, every month I worked with a different artist and it was, it's been such a great experience because I learned so much from younger artists and their ambition and their, their dreams and their goals. And, um, it's always a different kind of art form. Like that's, what's also been exciting. So I've worked with poets and songwriters and, uh, more like multidisciplinary and, uh, you know, I'm working, I worked with someone who wants to make a graphic novel. And so it's, yeah, it's been, it's been great. I, I think the hard thing is because I work with a different artist per month, I always feel like I'm not doing enough. Like even mm-hmm. as I'm, I'm talking about this, I'm like, Oh God, like have I failed these artists, you know? But like, I feel like in the end I was like, I feel like four weeks or five weeks where we talk on a regular basis is better than nothing and better than just choosing one. Cool. Yeah. Are you going to do it again next year? I want to, um, so it would be this year, but I think I need to take a break. Right. (laughs) Um, especially now that I'm back to my nine to five, it just changes like my uh, schedule and how much time I'm able to give. I think I want to try a different model. Mm. Um, but I'm not going to say what that is. All right. Fair enough. Okay. So I have a little bit of a lightning round. So, um, what's the greatest lesson you've learned about art? Greatest lesson I've learned about art is that you have to make the bad art to make the good art. Cool. Do you want me to expand or? You can, it's up to you. Okay. 
what was the question again? The greatest lesson? About art. The greatest lesson I, uh, I've learned about art is that you've got to make the bad art to make the good art. Um, especially with songwriting, I've gone through, you know, these phases where, you know, you're writing these songs and they're terrible. And I had this friend that I was talking to at the time where I was like, oh God, everything I write is just like awful. And she's like, you just got to keep with it. You just got to keep doing it. You got to sh keep showing up. And eventually you get to the gold. And that seems to always be the case. It's like mm -hmm. always about warming up that muscle. And you kind of got to like, it's kind of like when you haven't been at home for a month and you turn on the tap and like it's a little bit brown at first. <laughs> you got to let out that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And then you get to the, the nice, delicious water. <laughs> right. okay. um, what's the greatest lesson you've learned about working with youth? I think the greatest lesson I've learned about working with youth is that I have so much to learn from them. I think that there is this kind of almost condescending tone about like, you know, we must support the art of the youth, you know, how do, how do, how do we support the, the youth as though youth are like in dire need of like, <laughs> of uh, our help, of our help. <laughs> yeah. And that's not to say that youth aren't interested in our help, but I find like, especially with like, I mean, this isn't art related, but like certainly with gender, like being on Instagram and looking at like what youth are doing in terms of their gender presentation and how they're going about it, like for me has been way more um, inspiring than anything that I've done. Like it's, it, I, I feel like I learned so much from working with them and I don't even mean that in a, in a pretentious kind of mm -hmm. way. I genuinely, I think it's a, a constant reminder is that like, even with this mentorship program that like they have as much to offer me as I have to offer them okay what's the greatest lesson you've learned about love I think the greatest lesson I've learned about love is that it grows I think that there's this idea that um, you know you fall in love you have a relationship it sort of like hits a particular point but in both of my major relationships, I think one of the things I've learned is that like love can grow and reshape and remodel and be so many things, you know, like my ex and I, who I, you know, was married to for five years and who I was like with for 10 years in total, like our relationship in some ways is like so much more profound than where we started. And my boyfriend right now, same thing. Like when we met, I didn't feel this like instant like attraction like um and i was like is this what it means to be a relationship in your 30s where you know i'm not sitting by the phone waiting for him to call like i don't feel you know out of my mind um but i think it, it's really been about the slow burn that the more we've unpeeled layers the more we've gotten to know each other and the more we've fallen in love with each other and like we're going to five years and i feel like i'm in the honeymoon period still you know so yeah i think the greatest thing i've learned about love is that it grows what a nice Okay, this is, and finally, what's the greatest lesson you've learned about independence? Ooh, I think one of the greatest lessons I've learned about independence, especially in the past year working through my transition, has been that any feelings of independence that I've had have largely come from male privilege. Um, you know, as someone who now like needs friends to walk me, need, needs a friend to walk me to, um, the street where I can catch a cab or it needs a friend to accompany me to the washroom um, because I'm worried about safety. I, it, it's such a bizarre thing because I've been so used to like, I can do anything myself. I don't need anyone. And it's been weird to be like, oh, actually that's about male privilege and that like the need to rely on someone um, 
is is very much about um what it means to be feminine in the world and and also i mean i think that connects to ableism too right like my my ability to be independent has been also connected to to um ableism right or being able whatever that means Mm -hmm. okay okay that's it thank you Established in 2013, Bonerkill is an intergenerational, intersectional, feminist-identified art collective with occasional invitational guest artists focused on collaborative art-making and transdisciplinary exchange. They're an art collective that pops up around Toronto with interactive art projects challenging the art consumer, for example, as a response to an art gallery that hiked its rent, which only allowed certain artists to show their stuff there, though it was guaranteed to draw a big crowd. They set up shop nearby selling kombucha, an ancient Chinese health tea, since like colonized to death in all the bougie health food stores and fawned over by Goop as a sort of comment on art and gentrification. They're also interested in challenging who gets to be an artist, where and why, like they did with their show at the AGO's first Thursday last fall. Shout out to Pamela Mathrao's lead uh, artist facilitator and co-founder of the group. Here's my conversation with Sophie Mesa. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> sure. Okay, so why don't we start with um, Boner Kill? Why don't you start by telling me what drew you to be a part of Boner Kill? Okay, um, yeah, so the story kind of started in high school where I had like all these questions for a friend of mine and I was like, how do I how do I how do I ask these things or like all the stuff was happening with my body and I was like Hmm. I don't know like my nipples feel weird and stuff or like this is like I don't know what what is this or like what's happening to me yeah and also like some students are organizing like a conference like a alternative school conference kind of thing and I don't and then all these girls came to see you guys speak? Um, yeah. At this conference? Yeah. And then we were like, Let's What was your conference it. about? Just like, it was why isn't the there? F word, literally like the feminism. Right. Like, whatever. Cool. Okay. And um, so they all came and we're like, Let's do it. Like, let's make an art collective. And that's how it started. Oh, cool. Yeah. Like, it happened at a conference. Kind of. Yeah. Like, we had, and then we had another one the next year. Uh huh. Like, I guess girls were still interested. Okay. Yeah. So how did you find people to be part of the collective? Just all the people that were in the room? Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's cool. Not everyone, but like we were like, a bunch of people should come back. That's and so what, cool. It started like an after school group kind of yeah. thing. Like collage and like play music and talk. Yeah. Mostly talk. <laughs> and what did you guys talk about? Just like everything. Like, like why are my nipples sore? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or like my brother like always makes me wash more dishes than him why the, like why do my why are my parents okay with that like just like so many things or, right wow i was at this job and this guy did this to me and whatever that like, feels weird okay <laughs> yeah and then you guys would make art while you would talk and listen to music and all that stuff yeah okay yeah. cool <laughs> and do you remember the first show that you were part of uh i think the first thing we did was we made a zine called weapon and yeah. it was like how can you use your knowledge and understanding of like like feminism as a weapon to like move through things like the world world. yeah Yeah. and make art about it and whatever cool so so boner kill has existed then for a few years yeah and you guys have done like a number of shows now um can you tell me about one of your favorite art projects that you worked on with boner kill i really liked our first zine weapon i think yeah it was like my favorite for sure because it was like um, it was really like us trying to figure out how to use these tools, kind of. And I, 
that was like the first time I ever like thought about those things and so for me personally it was, what like, tools what do you mean well just like how to use like for me I was doing like photo I did like a journal entry and some photos and I was like trying to figure out how women are seen and how I'm seen and how I see girls and like how like what's going on and like expressing all these things that I felt were supposed to be like so normal that I never really like saw before. Why don't you tell me about what being in this collective means to you? I think Boner Kill is really cool to be a part of because of it's like it's like a family kind of it's like my family in a way because I don't like I don't have actual family in the country so a lot of because I've known these people since like basically 2013 I which was like the year that my mom left to move back to Columbia like Mm -hmm. I it was like so important to me to like have like a support system kind of and like people that I can talk to because Bonerfield was really the first people that I that I could like talk to about all these like things that were happening that had to do with like feminism and my role like me being a girl in the world basically which is like hard to talk to people about yeah a lot so that was really cool that like Pam was really awesome and like Sylvia like everyone everyone Sylvia and they're like my best friends too which it's just it's kind of like um part of it is a very like emotional thing that is like nice to be with them and like make stuff with them and but it's also cool because it gives it's a lot of I get a lot of opportunities to like talk about work or make work or you know what I mean like so that's really awesome that's nice yeah um you boner kill was part of a first Thursday um, in 2016 and First Thursday is an art event night that happens at the Art Gallery of Ontario um, and it's usually a really big party and it's always like sold out weeks in advance yeah. and um, it's a big to-do in the city. Um, can you and, and uh, what you guys did I think it was called House Lessons It Takes a Village to yeah. Raise an Artist. Can you tell me about that project? Yeah so so for Boner Kill House Lessons um, we had Three art, it was a performance piece um, with three different artists. So there was Shaysta Latif and Kira Bolt, who are both members of Boner Kill, and then Lily Davis. And each of them did like an hour, roughly, performance um, about kind of like educating uh, the community and each other. Like Kira did like a kind of like a performance presentation thing on, on um, gentrification in Hamilton and Steel City, <laughs> which is really awesome. And then Lily did uh, a presentation as well on Frankie Knuckles and their, uh, his, um, like, yeah, homosexual side that was kind of excluded from the Theaster Gates show. Frankie Knuckles is a musician, house musician. Okay. He basically, like, started house okay. kind of in Chicago. And um, when Theaster Gates made a show, Lily was thinking about how uh, they didn't really represent him and his to his full capacity. Okay. Kind of. So, so she was talking about where house music was coming from. Mm-hmm. Like she had a stance with like our eyes closed, like to house music, and then um, Shaista did like a punk performance 
kind of thing where she, it was it was a kind of, like a stand up comedy um kind of fuck you thing okay yeah and so what <laughs> was the really cool. like what were you guys trying to like what was the thesis of house lessons what we did you guys want to um, like it present? was kind of, yeah it was it was a uh, about um like kind of real histories in a way we so often are told things from one perspective and like mostly like a male old white perspective mm-hmm. and so we wanted to like be like no we're we're real women that feel these things and yeah. we we see it this way and this is the way that it people hide it like this is the way it was and how it's hidden and kind of thing like with like i think uh lily really sh- showed that with like the when she was doing the presentation about Frankie Knuckles. Right, about who gets left out in history. Yeah, and I mean, especially because the Art Gallery of Ontario, it's one of the biggest art galleries in this country, Mm -hmm. if not the biggest one, and, like, extremely prestigious and mainstream. And um, I think I read a little bit about what Pamela was talking about, is, like, who gets to come in and who gets to be legit, considered legit. And it's usually there's a formula or criteria for the artists that are allowed through the doors. But, you know, you guys are artists like anyone is an artist. Um, But that you don't necessarily see your stuff or who you are represented or mirrored back to you in, in art galleries, let alone a really big one like this. Yeah. So I kind of read a little bit, and correct me if I'm wrong, that yeah. it was about representation as well, yeah, right? Like sure. you deserve to be there. Yeah, and like during the whole thing, the rest of us were just like sitting, taking up space really. Yeah. Like we were like sitting on the floor like by these couches and like we were just like there like it was our living room. Yeah. It was our house and right right getting comfortable yeah good um do you folks have anything coming up yeah we have a fun project with gallery 44 right in toronto yeah okay what's Um, that i don't know if i'm allowed to oh right okay fair enough (laughs) can you give me like some themes maybe that Um, i kind of about uh girlhood stories kind of girlhood stories it's it's gonna be called tell okay yeah cool when does that come out do you know or sort of uh, I think first week of May. Oh, okay, so yeah, soon. Pretty soon, yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much for yeah. speaking with us today. Thanks it was nice having Tal Lewis is a Jamaican-Canadian artist and self-taught sculptor who enjoys exploring the political boundaries of nature, identity, and authenticity. Her current practice relies heavily on her surrounding environment. She uses live plants, found objects, and repurposed materials collected throughout the Canadian landscape to create figurative sculptures investigating Black identity politics and African diaspora. She's exhibited at the Art Gallery of Ontario and a few places in New York, and she's here with us to talk, among other things, about how she finds a sense of independence in making her art. Here's Tao. Okay. Hi, Tao. Thank you for joining us. Oh, of course. Nice to be here. Um, okay. So why don't we just start with um, the theme that we have for our um, issue right now is independence. So I wanted to ask you about your sense of independence or how you find a sense of independence in your own art. Um, I think that I have, uh, I have the privilege of having not gone through art school. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that I, I encounter some disadvantages, I think, in terms of, you know, feeling like sometimes I'm missing certain vocabulary or a certain, like, knowledge about art history. But at the same time, I notice with a lot of my peers, especially with my studio mates, um, that they kind of hit a lot of walls, I think. Um, and I've never had the experience of 
sort of creating under the, the guidelines of someone else or um, running into some of the complications, I think, that come out of, you know, being critiqued in, like, the classroom setting. Yeah. Um, so I think I have, like, a pretty open and honest and usually fearless approach to the way that I sort of uh, create things and, and do my own research. Um, so I think that in, in the context of, like, feeling sort of independent in my craft, I've always sort of felt as if I'm just very independent in the way that I create because I haven't gone through the education system. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I know some people who also went to art school who said, like, the mere image of what you're saying, meaning that, you know, they were excited to go for the freedom it would offer them in terms of being able to explore what they could mm -hmm. make and who they are as an artist and so on, but also that it's immensely confining as well because you're yeah. with a bunch of people um, in, and that you perhaps like compare yourself to and then there's like teachers or whomever telling you to kind of be this way or this is how you get a job when you leave or mm -hmm. all these extra stresses that you don't really consider when you just want to go somewhere to make art. Yeah, exactly. And so it sounds like you didn't really have... Yeah, no, I've never experienced that. And I think um, having a having an art career sort of in, in, in any position is can be competitive and can be quite difficult. Um, but a lot of the time I just don't really have the, uh, the second guessing thing, I think, that, that a lot of my peers sort of go through in, in their process. Um, so I think that that's, uh, that's an advantage that, that I have because I haven't gone through that system. Right. Um, so in that vein, I guess, while it, if part of, um, Making any art is finding your own voice uh, and trusting yourself. Um, what sort of uh, meditations or work do you do as an artist to make sure that you approach your art from that place? Um, I, I think that more recently now than, than maybe in the last, like, the previous two years, I'm trying to just be very honest in the way that I'm using sculpture as a method of storytelling. So I'm not overthinking things, and I'm also only kind of using the knowledge and materials that I have available to me. Um, so a lot of the time I end up working with found materials and objects and repurposing them and just trying not to um, complicate those materials. Or, or uh, I, like, I like for the art to have as much autonomy as it can. So I like to sort of let things kind of come into fruition on their own and not have too much um, control over it, I guess, if that makes sense. What does that mean when you're like, you're putting a bunch of materials together? I mean, you are the artist, right? So you're deciding mm -hmm. what goes where and so on. So how do you differentiate between materials having their own autonomy and you intervening and making a piece of art out of them? Um, because a lot of things just don't work together and a lot of things do. And a lot of the work that I make is... Uh, like very kind of structural, like it's um, things that have to fit together um, and things that have to sort of um, balance on each other or rely on each other in order to be like a full vessel. Um, so it's a lot of it's just kind of finding pieces that, that fit together and that work. Um, and lots of exper experimentation as well. Um, but yeah, I'm interested in kind of just breaking away from having this feeling of control over everything. I think when I started making art, I was really concerned with things being 
really perfect and uh, and looking very polished. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to sort of loosen that up a lot and just be much more fluid about the way that I can represent a figure through sculpture. Okay. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about one of those materials. I know that um, you use plants or mm-hmm. you have used plants in the past and cacti specifically. Mm-hmm. And I've heard about how you have mentioned that it in the, I don't know if you still do it, but at some point and perhaps still, it's still very symbolic. It's still, it's very symbolic in your work um, as portraying black identity and the diaspora. Mm-hmm. So why can you talk a little bit about that, about how that material kind of interacts with those um, definitions for you? Um, well, I, I was interested in using live plants because I really like the idea of art that's sort of less commercial in the sense that it'll it'll sort of change and it can die and it sort of implicates the viewer or the buyer. Um, and it's also, it's a living thing, right? Um, I like the idea of people living with art. Um, I think a lot of collectors, especially in Toronto, collect in really strange ways so that they're not really living with art and their their collections often look like sort of house museums um mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah and and again like I, I don't like, touch anything <laughs> yeah i like for the art to sort of have its own its own uh autonomy in a way um and i, I mean I, I'm, I'm attracted to plants and i'm very much kind of interested in plants my mom was a, a landscaper she's a self-taught mm. landscaper so I grew up with these things all over my house and I noticed because I, li- I live on Queen West and I've always kind of lived downtown that these are plants that are just sort of all of the shops are kind of adorned with them and yeah. they don't they're, they're they're just not um this isn't their habitat right yeah. um they come from really like hot tropical places and they're beautiful and they can survive for a very long time with like very little attention, but they still require like a certain specific kind of care. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was just sort of, I guess, a metaphor that I generated for something that I thought spoke really beautifully to the work as well um, and became like a very important part of those portraits when I was building them. Uh, even just aesthetically, they kind of became like a part of a head or acted as kind of like hair inside of the portrait. Mm-hmm. Um, you mean like a flowing cacti has hair and mm-hmm. stuff like that, right? Yeah. 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 I, you know, I was taking a look at some of the art that you make. You mentioned having a piece where you used a plant or a cactus for hair, for example. Mm-hmm. And um, with that, it seems to it seemed to me anyway, that there was like um a bit of a th- one of the threads running through it was a sense of um, survival, which is also how you described what attracted you to the plants. And I find like, it, do you see a link between a sense of survival and independence? Sometimes I think of it myself as like they're very twinned together. Mm-hmm. You know, like trying to survive and exert your independence while trying to survive at the same time. Like, what do you think about yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, trying to survive and assert your independence at the same time. I mean, I guess that sort of depends on the individual or how they kind of achieve that sense of independence. Um, but I think that's probably why most artists create. Um, Does that resonate for you? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I myself, I think that I am very independent. I mean, I'm not, 
I have no social life. Like all I do is pretty much make work and I'm mm -hmm. constantly making work. Um, and I mean, my art career has pretty much like enveloped my life, but I think that, um, sort of once, once you find that ticket and for me, producing is my ticket, it's, uh, it's like the ultimate tool, I think, to just feeling well overall. Hmm. Right. Okay. Um, can you talk a bit about how your identity politics might fuel the art, the art that you make? How they fuel the art that I make? Yeah. Well, um, I think that, I think that it's sort of, it's probably impossible for any artist to sort of 100% subtract their identity from their work. Yeah. Um, and I find that a lot of times, like even artists of color who are making work that's not necessarily political or that's not like trying to be overtly political, it sort of becomes, it's consumed as political art once the, the identity of the, the artist is, is known, right? Mm -hmm. Like the color of your skin, it's unfortunate, but it kind of affects very heavily the way that people consume you and consume your artwork. Um, so again, I think that it's just, it's, it's a method of storytelling for me and it's getting more personal now, but, um, I've always been interested in kind of just exploring, I guess, the role of the black Canadian and myself as a biracial person and, um, figuring out sort of how to tell those stories through portraiture and through sculpture, um, Yeah, because I, I think that anything else for me to make anything else would I can't imagine myself really uh, telling any other any other stories at this point. Right. Um, what's the greatest lesson you've learned about independence? Hmm. I, I guess that it's it's always achievable and it's always um, an option especially in the context of art. I think it's hard to sort of um, navigate the art landscape anywhere and and not sort of analyze other people or, you know, um, take in too much of other people's sort of lives and, and information, especially with social media and stuff like that. But I think that art, producing art is like the best way to sort of um, maintain freedom in a lot of ways. I think that for myself, it's the most honest way for me to exist. And it's probably the most honest way for me to sort of feel like myself um, yeah. and to feel like I can communicate very like truthfully and forcefully and honestly. Um and I mean, even if no one were looking at my art and even if I weren't sort of showing my art anyway, that's still a tool that I have. Mm -hmm. And that can be very cathartic and therapeutic and sort of the ultimate way for me to feel independent as just as an individual. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned sometimes, um, I, or rather I had read that sometimes your mental health challenges really fuel mm -hmm. your art. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Yeah, I think because I, I sort of channel a lot of emotion into my work. Um, and I think that, again, everything is sort of a deflection of whatever experience you're going through. And um, 
that's the most therapeutic time for me is sort of when I'm in my studio. Like I always skip out on New Year's and stuff like that. And I don't <laughs> celebrate my birthday and I don't do all those things. And it really like annoys some of my friends. But truthfully, I just want to be working and I just want to be in the studio. Um, and I forgot what the question was, but um, <laughs> um, I also forgot what the question was. <laughs> <laughs> um, it doesn't matter. That was a pretty good answer. Um, do you want to tell us about what you have coming up? Yeah. So uh, currently I'm making work for um, a two person exhibition at Cooper Cole. Um, it's in Toronto? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's uh, near DuPont and Dufferin. Um, and that's going to be a two person show with Curtis Tallway Santiago who uh, has been practicing in New York for the last year at the Pioneer Works residency. Um, and now he's in South Africa doing another residency. But he makes really beautiful drawings. He formerly was doing like ring box sculptures, um, which he still does, I think. But he started making these beautiful drawings, often asking questions about ancestors. Um, he's another black artist. And my work is sort of taking a new sort of... I guess it's not so much like a new direction, but I'm more interested in sort of um, analyzing like my own sort of very personal narratives um, and using like full figure sculptures to kind of... Um, what do you mean by personal narratives? Uh, well, I mean, I decided with this last exhibition at 811 that I didn't want to make any more work about black identity or diaspora until I could sort of really um, begin like a very in-depth approach to my own sort of story and my own upbringing um, and just a very personal experience um, through sculpture. So I'm interested in producing more work sort of in that context um, and sort of telling stories that are quite personal to me, but at the same time I'm finding can resonate with other people as well. Um, and so that's, that's going to be the, the two-person show. So I think it'll be interesting because it's coming from, on my end, like a sort of more personal, very detailed place. And then Curtis's, I guess, drawings are going to sort of explore more like open kind of historical narrative, asking questions about ancestors and asking questions about the past. So one story will be very specific and one story will be more macro. Mm -hmm. Cool. That's great. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much for speaking Amazing. with us today. Okay, that's it. We hope you enjoyed it. I want to thank all of my guests so much for joining us. The song you heard up top is called Girl, It's Your Time by Vivek Shraya. The one you're hearing right now is called When Did You Stop Having My Back by Vivek Shraya with Lightfires. And you can check out more of what Vivek is doing at vivekshraya.com. You can check out Bonerkill at officialbonerkill.tumblr.com and Tao Lewis at taolewis.com. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you next time. Bang to the ground, my head pounds and body shakes